Hi, I'm Ed Jaffe and welcome back to JaffeWoodwinds.com and the Woodwind Legacy Series. This afternoon I'm interviewing a, an old friend, mentor, and someone who I have the greatest respect for as a musician and as a teacher. Uh, Bob Mover has been a major force in the industry for many, many years. And uh, I'm so glad we had the opportunity today to uh, spend time with Bob and get some insights into his career, but also having him uh, spread some insights as to how he goes about teaching creative jazz improvisation. And so, Bob, thanks so much for coming up here today, oh, man. Oh, thank it's, you, Ed. My and uh, I'm, I'm so glad we have this opportunity to spend and share with our viewers. Oh, um, uh, you've had a long career and you've uh, played with virtually everybody. But before we get into those details, let's talk a little bit about how you got involved in music, uh, playing the saxophone and, you know, uh, you know, coming out of Boston, how, how that all transpired. Okay, well, I was born into a musical family. My father was a trumpet player who had played with Tommy Dorsey and Jerry Wald's big band. and Charlie Spivak, I think, as well. Charlie Spivak. Right, I remember. And, and he played like a Spivak kind of style, you know. Uh -huh. But when he played jazz, he played a little bit more like Charlie Shavers because he had been on the band with Charlie Shavers on Dorsey's band. I see. In fact, when, I was, when my mother was pregnant with me, I got a couple of presents. One from Charlie Shavers, I got this plaid Kango bebop cap, what they used to call a bebop cap, with a matching plaid bow tie. <laughs> Somehow he said, I know it's going to be a boy in here. This is for the kid. And uh, so, my dad, so you had no choice. I had no choice. Right? <laughs> Believe me. You know, well, if I had been a good athlete, I might have wanted to do that. But, you know, but <laughs> other than that, I was really inept at sports. But I loved, I loved sports, but I was terrible at them. But uh, my dad was funny about that because he explained to me that Lou Gehrig was not a natural the way Big Babe Ruth was. But still, through his sheer will right. and desire, became a great baseball player. But my father said, you know, there might be some things that, you know, you're more natural at, like you may be a natural musician. Because he could tell from the time I was three or four years old, I was always at the piano. Right. And uh, when they took me to the movies, I remember when I was about six years old, we saw Can-Can uh, Can with Sinatra. And uh, I think it was Shirley MacLaine, Julia Proust, somebody. And uh, I came back and remembered you do something to me and kind of played it on the piano, you know, in the key yeah. of C. I played everything in the key of C. And we saw Over the Rainbow, I remembered. We just, you know, you, they didn't have VCRs and that kind of thing. You couldn't right. see it over and over. Right. But when we saw The Wizard of Oz, I kind of remembered Over the, over the Rainbow, much of it. Right. And uh, if I only had a brain, you know, I, and I went to the piano and I remember figuring those things out. Right, right. And enjoying figuring things out as a kid on the piano. You know, right, right. Discovering the first black note on the middle of the, bri of the bridge of uh, Over the Rainbow. And my dad had been, uh, he had a band at the Salisbury Beach Frolics in Boston as well, which was a, a resort town. And Billy Eckstein had come in. They played for the different singers that came in. And my dad got a really good band in Boston for that particular thing. He told me he had like Dick Twardzik on piano, he had Charlie Mariano, he had Herb Pomeroy, Joe Gordon. Top guys. Integrated band, you know. Yeah. And Billy Eckstein liked the band so much, he said, no, that band, that book hadn't been played as well since he'd had the band. And he wanted my father to become his musical director. But my dad turned him down because my mother was pregnant with me and he didn't want to leave town. And I have an electric train, I don't have it anymore, but there's a picture of my father, my mother, me and my mother's belly, and uh, 
an electric train that Billy Eckstein got me when I was born. Wow. So, so I grew up with that kind of thing. Yeah, so you had a lot of music in the household and you were surrounded by it from the time you were, you were born. Yeah, and they gave me piano. My dad also played the theremin. And he was wow. on the Ernie Kovacs show with the theremin. He played some of really? that. Really? Yeah. There's a Twilight Zone bit where you hear the uh, satire on the Twilight Zone. Uh, and uh, my dad is playing the theremin on that. You can hear that. So he, uh, he did that. And he was in New York and he knew. Um, he got out of music and became a salesman. And uh, his, the rest of the story is pretty tragic, but we won't go into that. Yeah. Well, how did you come to the saxophone? I came to the saxophone because first I was playing the piano, but I was born with what is called gross motor difficulty. So it made me very hard. It made it very hard for me to play contrary motion, for example. I was not coordinated. That's why I, I was talking about, you know, wanting to be an athlete and being really bad at it. Yeah. <laughs> I had this motor difficulty problem. You all, you, the, the good thing, I mean, today you'd probably get a big contract from the Knicks. The way they're, <laughs> no, I don't know. <laughs> you know the way they're going. <laughs> uh, yeah, well, but, maybe. But, but uh, so, so obviously, uh, counterpoint on the piano would have been a... a it was a, hard. Yeah. But I liked Bach, and I had a teacher named Al Vega, who was a very good musician in Boston, played around Boston for years, a jazz pianist. Uh, you know, jazz cocktail kind of style, but good. And he got me into Bach. He got me into the, even the story of Bach, how he had all these children and all those things, so... I like playing Bach one line at a time, one right. hand at a time. I got into doing that a little bit, right. inventions, but I couldn't put them together. Got it. I was very frustrated. So then I got into trumpet to try to play like my father, and my father was a terrible teacher. Had absolutely no patience. Well, it's, it's very hard to study with a parent any instrument. It may be, but even, I don't think, he, maybe he never taught anybody else, but if I got something wrong twice, it was maybe all right. If I got it wrong the third time, he didn't talk to me. Told me I was just had no talent. I was absolutely useless, worthless, and wouldn't have dinner with me. Even would say, you know, I'll eat when he's through. You know that kind of thing. You know, wow. Like he was, he was nasty at times. Yeah. So you had to, you had to find another instrument. Yeah, definitely. And but even then, I went to guitar. And after that, after piano, I went to guitar. After trumpet, and I was about nine, ten years old now on guitar. And we would play C jam blues, and I would play blues changes. And if I messed up, he'd get mad at me too, you know, so. Right. That was it. But I had a best friend named Harold Butler, who was a, this is how I came about to jazz, who was a, a, the same, one year older than me, one, one year ahead of me in school. And Harold played guitar too. And we both wore these duck's ass haircuts, you know, in the back, like the, yeah. and, and wore leather jackets. And we would pretend to be the Everly Brothers. <laughs> and we started saying all of those things in perfect harmony. We had on all the Buddy Holly tunes and yeah. also Little Richard. We did that stuff and Chuck yeah. Berry. And we were really rock and rollers, you know. We had that stuff down. And uh, we were pretty good for two, you know, 10 and 11 year olds. But when I was 12, I moved to, uh, or 11, the end of my 11th year, I moved to Florida. We moved away from, from Swampscott, Massachusetts, which is where. I grew up, it's outside of Boston, about 20 miles north of Boston. And it's a nice, fairly affluent town and everything. But then we moved to Florida, we lost our money, my parents got divorced, life changed considerably, and probably for that reason I learned to play. Uh, I could play with, with some soul. Oh. Anyway, um, when I so, moved to Florida, yeah. uh, my friend Harold, who was, uh, we, he was an adopted kid and we even looked alike. Um, he was in Massachusetts. He was about to come down and visit me, and he was killed. He was hit by a car. Jesus. 
And at that point, I couldn't listen to rock and roll anymore without being like totally losing it and being very sad and crying. And I couldn't play the guitar anymore. I just couldn't. Uh, everything reminded me of, you know, his friend. Yeah. Because I idolized this kid, too. He was everything I wasn't. You know, he was a real daredevil. I mean, he'd climb the highest tree and he'd do as he fell out of a tree. He'd break something every year. But it didn't <laughs> stop him. You know, he was, and I was a natural coward. I had this Jewish yeah, right. trepidation <laughs> for things my grandmother told me. You know, my grandmother said, no, you don't, uh, you don't do that. No, right, no, right, you right. You can hurt yourself. No, I don't know. Right, that. right. So, you know. <laughs> you walk down the street looking backwards. Yeah, right, looking backwards, <laughs> you know, right. So I didn't do that. But I was very sad. And I felt like, you know, there's a feeling when you have a loss like that. I'd never experienced any kind of loss, any kind of death. And uh, nobody really understands and this and that. And then I found this record called Blue Lester, which had a picture of Pre Prez, Lester Young, in a pinstripe suit with the horn held like this. Yeah. I went to my parents' record collection because I needed music, but I couldn't get into any of the records I was into, you know. Right. So, no Little Richard, Jerry Lee Lewis, all that was out. So, I put on a song, actually Blue Lester, and it starts minor. It goes, ba da do dee ba do do dee ba do 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 dee do ba da dee dee ba da ba do ba dee do do dee ba da ba do ba do be do ba dee do dee da ba ba bo And to me, I heard it like, the gloom, but do do the very sad, and then but do but do 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 All of a sudden, it went into major, and there was hope. I heard it right there. I heard Prez. He knows. He understands. There's something he knows about pain and suffering in in his playing. I could feel it in his sound, and I got fascinated huh. with Lester Young. And uh, from there. I read this show business illustrated article that a friend of ours was reading about bebop and it had pictures of Charlie Parker and Thelonious Monk and Dizzy Gillespie right. and this kind of thing. So I got very curious about that. And my dad had a couple of Dizzy Gillespie records, but we didn't have any Charlie Parker records. But we did have some uh, some Dizzy, this record for musicians only with Dizzy and sure. and Stitt, Stitt and Stan Getz. And that's been reissued now on CD many years ago, so that's available. Right. Yeah. And everything is fast, you know, it's very fast tempos. And I heard Stan Getz. And, uh, you know, oh, I hadn't thought really about, it seemed that jazz was a black thing because everybody I'd listened to was that. I'd heard some Dave Rubeck, but I didn't really care for that too much. But there was Stan Getz, a white Jewish guy, hanging in there with, uh, you know, with these heavy black instead, musicians, yeah, yeah. you know. And, and also the drummer was Stan Levy, another, <laughs> right. another white Jewish boy. Yeah. So I said, ah, hey, there might be a chance, maybe, maybe I can play this music. And uh, so two things happened at that time, at the age of 12. I'm trying to go through this, because I know we have a lot of things to cover. Sure. But um, the fact that I, I related to this, I was singing all the solos. It just was a natural thing to do, right? which we'll talk later about, you know, how I give my students things to sing. Right. But I wasn't doing it. I was just doing it because I liked doing it. Right. And I would also take my dad's trumpet and put on a beret and dark glasses. Think you were dizzy. And pretend I was dizzy and play. <laughs> I couldn't play the notes to the record, but what I didn't realize I was doing 
I was training my fingers to tap these rhythms because Dizzy would go, you know, and there was, I was, you know, tapping the rhythms to these bebop tunes. Without playing the notes, but just pantomiming like. Right. And that was like an excellent musician's training. Sure. To give me the foundation. Yeah, rhythmic, rhythmic solidity. Yeah, and, and the idea of making the music visceral, which is something I stress in my teaching as well. You know, right. it's, uh, when I read uh, parts of Rabbi Shankar's autobiography years ago, he talks about how in India, they don't even give you the instrument until you can sing and tap these ragas. Interesting. Then you get an axe, then you get to play. An right. instrument, but. And, and sort of a variation on the French where you have to solfege before you get an instrument. Yeah. I mean, isn't that interesting? A, a different concept. Huh. Excuse me. Yeah, that's the idea. So, yeah, right. so to me, that means, you know, the very important thing is to feel the music viscerally. You know, somebody would say, what's the first thing you want to teach somebody about music? Before I'd even tell them that 5-7 goes to 1, I would tell them you have to feel it viscerally. You should tap and sing. You know, as much as you can. And, you know, uh, just a little uh, anecdote on the, on the singing aspect. You know, uh, reading about Louis Armstrong and his uh, biography and things he said, one of the things that stuck out to me uh, from reading this years ago, I think, was that he considered himself not a trumpet player who sings, but a singer who plays trumpet. You know, That's which, very interesting. which is, you know, especially growing up in New Orleans and certainly being around all the opera houses as well and then the blues uh, singers and stuff. But that he he actually articulated that at one time, that he was a singer who played trumpet. Well, uh, there, I have two thoughts on that. One thought is um, something that, well, first of all, the second person I heard that I felt knew it, I mean, one of the around this time that had a profound knowledge of this feeling of loss and this feeling of everything. When I heard the version of Porgy and Bess of Louis and Ella Fitzgerald, that was another one of my listen to everyday records. When I heard the version of Bess, you was my woman now. And this and that, I could feel all that in Pops, that he had a depth that was very similar to Lester Young in the sense of feeling that. Pathos, yeah. Pathos, yeah, pathos, yeah. The other thing about songs and about singing because I sing, and actually, you, you might not have heard it, but on the last two records I give you, I actually did record a bunch of vocals. Well, I heard the one with Tony Castellano that you did years ago, yeah. where you, you sang a lot on with that. That uh, never came out, but actually two records have come out where I sang quite a bit. Right. Um, now it's harder for me to sing with this emphysema condition. Right. But still, it was a love of songs. Um, and this is a very important thing, too. I think I was talking with Dave Frischberg a few years ago, and Dave said that... Uh, one of the things that distinguished Dave and, and myself from a lot of musicians, and I would say also distinguished Louis Armstrong, I mean, of course you have to love the instrument that you play. But some people got into music because they loved an instrument. He said, but guys like us, we got into music because we love songs. So the love of songs, I think, is a very important thing because that also happened when I was 12. Besides right. listening to this bebop and all these kind of things, I got deeply into Frank Sinatra and Billie Holiday. And also my mother had these records by Chris Conner 
and June Christie as well. Right. Beautiful singers. And Sinatra, Billie Holiday. I loved these standards. I loved these songs, and I loved the way. They were two other people that felt this pathos and this, right. you know, could really, the, the, the depths of happiness, the depths of and joy, and the depths of despair, they, that was all there, just the same way it was with Prez and Louis. Yeah. So I would find these people, and, you know, I said, okay, these are the people who I have to internalize. And then I, got, I hadn't heard Chet Baker sing yet, but I heard Mel Torme, and he had a voice a little bit like mine. So I started to sing because I couldn't really play an instrument. We had some drums in the house we got from my little brother. So I would start to play some drums. Right. Thought I might want to be a drummer. But again, the coordination was a little bit of a problem. <laughs> but I got to play the hi-hat on two and four and play a rock So how trouble. did you get to play the uncoordinated alto saxophone? Okay, so to make a long story short, I, um, I, I played, I started to sing. And I would sing for the neighbors. The neighbors would come over. And this is something Chet Baker and I used to laugh about because we both did, had a background like this. We would sing. My mother encouraged. My mother was a singer. Right. And she had sung with Al Donnie's band. She sang with my father's band for a while until she was replaced by Teddy King, who was also the singer with my dad's big band. Right. That was when she first came to, to be known. Um, but my mom was a vocal coach, too, and she would teach singers about phrasing and breath control, and these kind of things. And she really understood that. So um, I started to sing, and I would, I would sing for the neighbors. And I had no idea. I'd never been on a date. I was 12 years old. And uh, I'd sing, be singing, you know, You ain't gonna bother me no more, no how. Love goes just so far, no more. Woke up this morning and found I didn't, didn't care for you no more. Not now, etc. Which is intervallically very difficult, but nobody told me that. And I would just take Billie Holiday's record and copy it. So I could sing all these. I had a repertoire. By the t before I turned 13, I knew over 100 songs at least, all the lyrics and everything. And I would sing for the neighbors. But then around 13, my voice started to change. And I started to sound like Alfalfa and the little rascals. <laughs> I'm in the mood for love. <laughs> and once again, I'm back to that with the emphysema. <laughs> you come full circle. The whole thing of life. It's the whole thing. Yeah, circle the, of life. Right. The whole Megillah, as they yeah, say. Right. Or, you know. Um, so then when my voice changed, I decided that I wanted to play the saxophone. Um because I was like very much in, uh, into Stan Getz. And then I heard Charlie Parker. And that was a really big event in my life. Um, you couldn't find a Charlie Parker record. You had to go to the black neighborhood to get a Charlie Parker record in Miami. We moved to, right. to Florida now. I was, now I had just turned 13. I'd had my bar mitzvah. And I hadn't started playing saxophone yet. I was still singing, but my voice was changing. And I went to Jefferson Department Store where I ordered a Charlie Parker record. So it was a genius of Charlie Parker. I believe it was volume two. It had some of the stuff with strings, right. like Easy to Love. It didn't have just friends, but it had Easy to Love. It had repetition. It had... Uh, was it from the jam, the jam sessions uh, on there also? No, it just had, this okay. had some of the verb stuff. It had um, the second now's the time, the verb now's the time. It had Laird Baird. It had the song is you. Wow. Yeah, yeah. It had I love Paris. It had love for sale. Some of them was very last record. Yes. 
It also had three or four things of bird with strings, April in Paris, and uh, um, a few other things. And I spent the next eight hours listening to this record until I could sing everything on the record. By the time the day was over, I actually had the record memorized. Brooks Curry used to tell me I had a phonographic memory. Phonographic. Yeah, you know. <laughs> That's good. And he had one too, so he, my good friend Brooks. Then Stan Getz was giving a concert at Miami-Dade Junior College. My parents had split up by this point. This is in September. They split up in March, right after my bar mitzvah, April. And so September, we were somewhere else. And Stan was giving a concert. My mother said, go ahead, and you can go to the Stan Guest concert. You don't have to go to school today. Because he was giving a concert at 11 o'clock in the morning and another one at night. Wow. So I could sing all these solos at Stan's. So I got there at 10 o'clock, and I saw Gary Burton, Steve Swallow, and Roy Haynes setting up for the concert. And then uh, I talked to them and told them I could sing all the Stan's, many of Stan's solos and everything. And uh, they said, ah. I said, would you guys like me to get you coffee or something? They said, we'd love that. So I went to the cafeteria, and when I came back, Getz had arrived. And he was playing The Shadow of Your Smile, which was a new song at the time. This was 1965, September 24th, I well, believe. Yeah, because that, that's when the Sandpiper was released. Sandpiper right, came out. Right, right. And he was going, ba da ba da be da be do do da ba ba dee da dee da dee da Remember he played that little lick? Yeah. And uh, I, I said, I almost dropped the coffee on the band there with Stan Getz. I said, Mr. Getz. He said, oh, you're the kid who can sing my solos? I said, that's me. He said, really? He said, wow. Uh, sing one of them. So I went, boo doo ba doo beep ba 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 doo doo wee ba doo ba doo beep And sang Hershey Barton, then, boo ba doo beep boop beep boo ba dee da beep ba doo ba da ba doo ba da ba dee ba doo ba dee ba doo ba Etc. And that's how. And solo. what was his reaction? He said, "You really can't sing my solo." I said, "Yeah, I mean, I really love your music." And uh, you know, he said, "That's great." And uh, he was very nice. He liked kids, you know. He didn't always like grown-ups, but he liked kids. Yeah. <laughs> he was a very good father to his children, too. His children love him. He talked to his kids about him. He didn't do anything wrong. Um, well, I don't know, you know, that, but mostly, you know. Yeah. Um, so, so how then, did you come to the Aldo Okay, sex? so then what happened is, okay, then this is the end of that story. What happened is that night, that day, he said, I said, you know, they, won't, they make me sitting way in the back. He said, no, you sit on the stage with me. I sweat a lot. And there's no real good air conditioner here. I'll give you towels. When I go like this, you come up and hand me a towel. But you sit in the back of the stage with the band. So then the whole day, I went and I, I guarded this horn in the closet until the nighttime concert. And I sat on the stage again with the band at the nighttime concert. And I asked Stan for a read. I said, I'm going to start playing saxophone. I decided tonight. And uh, he said, uh, I said, great. And he gave me a four and a half Rico. So, which was the read he was playing that night. He took oh, it off his horn. He said, here, I've played this. It's a little soft for me now. And it was like a four, four and a half ago. So the next day I went to my friend Kenny Weiss at school and he played in the school band. And I said, do you think I could borrow your saxophone or, or you could show me how to put the read on and do this kind of thing? And, and I want to try the saxophone. I got a read last night from Stan Getz. 
So I put the four reed on, and of course got nothing. No, just there. Right. And then uh, I, uh, he Kenny said, try this, and he gave me a two. So I, he lent me his horn because nobody practiced. I said, can I have your horn for the weekend? He said, sure, it's a school horn. Take it home. And that weekend, I took the tenor home, and I got uh, most of the major scales, and I could play uh, a phrase from Stan Getz's focus record. I figured that out. And I said, I think I might be good at this. Because in one weekend, I'd gotten further than I ever got with any other instrument, you know, that fast. Right, right. And then uh, I uh, got the alto saxophone for $35. I had an aunt send me $35. And in a pawn shop on Flagler Street, I found a silver-turning green Holton. And that was my first saxophone. Wow. Well, let's jump ahead a little bit now, because from the time you started at 13, seven, eight years later, you're playing with Charles Mingus. Right. So that in between time, I mean, the progress, I mean, let's, let's be clear, this is not usual for anyone to make that type of progress that quickly. So clearly the gift, the ears, the talent was there early on, and it was just a matter of finding the vehicle in which to express that. And well, I think what was there early on was just the love because that enabled me to play eight hours a day. Right. Well, <laughs> you know, it's, all, it's, it's all of that. So I'm going to ask you a few questions here about some of the people who were most influential as teachers and guide people who guided you in the early years of your playing. So I'm going to start off with Phil Woods. Uh, so just let's talk briefly about some of these guys. Sure. Uh, um, and, uh, you know, your recollections of them, but how they, how they helped you. When I was 15 years old, there was a high school all-star band in Miami, junior high and high school. And it was led by a guy named Alan Rock, who had a jazz radio show down there called Jazz on the Rocks. And it was late. And uh, he put together this band. He was also the guy that introduced me to Ira Sullivan, which we'll talk about later. And this was a high school all-star band that was cooking. I mean, we really could... Uh, some of the guys became professional musicians. Um, Duffy Jackson, son of Chubby Jackson, Right. Was our drummer. I see. Um, the tenor players were Bill Pierce. Wow. And Mark Colby, who was a very sure. fine player in Chicago. Now he lives yeah. in Chicago. Wow. Um, one of the trumpet players was Melton Mustafa, who was Melton Jones. Right. At the time, later played with Count Basie. Right. So you had a, there was an array of talented young players there. This was a good, this was as good a high school band as I ever heard. And uh, anyway, there was an intercollegiate jazz festival held in Miami that year. And on Saturday morning, we did a clinic with Stan Getz, Oliver Nelson. Um, I think Gary McFarland might have been there. Stan Kenton was there. But Phil really took over the, the rehearsed the band. And uh, I could only play blues and F. And Alan hadn't really let me play any solos, except for this one blues and F I had a solo. But this day was the day of the college board exams. So I got to play lead alto, and I got to do all the solos because we had ringers from the college bands in, and they wanted to hear the high school solos. So I got to take a lot of solos, you know. And I didn't know what a chord change was or anything. And I was thought, thinking I could do it because Iris Sullivan didn't really know changes, and Stan was an ear player. I'd gotten to know Stan in another longer story. I'd gotten right. to know Stan fairly well. Right. Um, so Phil, 
uh, heard me and said, I, there's a summer camp called Ramblerney in New Hope, Pennsylvania. And, you know, I said, my family has no money for that kind of thing. We were really broke. Um, he said, well, you know, if they can come up with $300 for the whole summer, six weeks, that would cover your meals and stuff. He said, but the rest of it we can do with scholarship. And that wasn't even a lot of money then. Right. So I, Phil gave me a scholarship to that camp. And at the camp, there were guys like Roger Rosenberg was there. We became close friends. Right. Mike Brecker had been there for the previous two years. I see. And Mike visited the camp for a week to hang out. He just came to hang because he was a former student of Phil's also. So Mike and I struck up a real, we just gravitated toward each other. And as you saw, you know, we, when we were at Jersey City yeah, University. Yeah, when we had that concert years ago at the know. college, it was a nice reunion. Yeah. yeah, and Mike and I were just very close buddies. And uh, we used to terrorize all the jam sessions in our late teens together. <laughs> we were, they, they, people said, oh, here comes Les Enfants Terribles. Somebody <laughs> once said, one of the older musicians, ah, oh, here they are. And uh, so I studied with Phil that summer. And there was a guy named Norman Grossman who was a Broadway drummer, did a lot of Broadway shows and stuff. He was a great harmony teacher. He did the harmony class. And Phil would augment that, you know, the things that Norm was showing me. And Phil took special attention to me. In fact, put six saxophones in his big band. There were two. One was directed by Phil. The other was directed by Chris Swanson. Phil put me in his band. And would actually, he saw that I was practicing eight hours a day. And he would come into my practice room when I was practicing and just show me stuff. And uh, Chan, also I sang in the vocal group. And Chan was the, the, the uh, teacher for the vocal group. All right. So I became very close to Phil and Chan. And uh, unfortunately, one of the side things from that, the side effects of studying with Phil is he looked so cool when he smoked. He smoked these true blue cigarettes. And he would hold them in his right hand when he played. Yeah, yeah in, the, in, in between the, uh, I think it was the thir uh, third and fourth fingers. Between the index. And, oh, it was and index? And I thought it was third and fourth. But no, I remember, I and, and he would play like this with, it, you know, not, not right. curved finger, but in order to hold the cigarette. And I remember, I remember seeing him play like that also. Well, the other thing that he did was he, he said that my first teacher, Teddy Rosen, before that had said, you know, to hold a pencil or take a cigarette and don't light it, but hold it because instead of flapping your fingers, if you have a cigarette between your fingers, you small emotion. You, you small emotion, and you won't lift your fingers. Interesting. The keys, you know. Um, somebody once took a lesson with Charlie Parker, and he said, "I said, what did you get from that?" Or uh, Bob Newman, tenor player. He said he told me that think of my fingers as ten little hammers, each having the power of a hammer. So then you only need a light touch. Interesting. And anyway, the cigarette kept it close to the key, and I didn't light a cigarette until the, uh, the Democratic Convention, when I was watching it on TV in Chicago oh. in 1968. I was watching it in New England at my grandparents' house. And I was seeing people I knew had gone to Chicago, and they were getting their heads bashed in, some of them. Yeah. So I, I lit a cigarette, and that's when it started. Yeah. By the way, Phil also, like you, had emphysema at the end of his tour, the last 15 years of his life or so. And you told me a great little uh, anecdote that Phil said about that. Yeah, Phil said that emphysema was God's way of telling you that your solos have been too long. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and uh, he always had a way of putting a spin on things that were sort of a brilliant way of, of, of looking at things. He was brilliant and funny, 
And uh, I actually went and spent a Christmas with him. Uh, they almost adopted me, and that's another story that would right. take hours. Yeah. But, but the point is, you had this master teaching you at a young age or, and, and being encouraging to you. And that had to give you a, a sense of, you know... Right. Uh, well, my first teacher, Teddy Rosen, also in Miami, was a tremendously great um, musician right. that studied with Lady Tristano and played a you know, beautiful tenor. He made a living in the shows in, in Miami. Right. But he showed me how to play the saxophone correctly. So that was why by, I had only been playing a year and a half when Phil heard me. Right. But the reason I'd gotten so good, too, was Teddy. I've got to always acknowledge right. Teddy. All right, so let's talk about Iris Sullivan a little bit, someone who was a legend already uh, in Miami uh, by that time that you were down there and, and, and for many decades forward. How did he influence you? Well, Ira had just moved to Miami. In, I met Ira when I was 13. I think Ira was 34. And... Uh, he was a tremendous influence. I mean, how many people that age, he really took me under his wing and would talk to me for hours. We would sit in his car and we would discuss Charlie Parker, the Bible. I was a very strong Christian and has a really beautiful way of, of putting it. It's not your, what you might expect from some of the people on the street corner. Right. Um, he's given it a lot of thought. And uh, influenced my thinking greatly. We would talk about what it took to be a jazz musician. I, the dedication that Ira had right. to it was just by example. I learned a lot. Incredible. And as I got older, he let me sit in a little bit. And uh, I remember finally, when I was about 17, 18, Ira said, you know, I speak to you as an equal now. And that meant a lot to me. Wow. So, I mean, you, you, clearly you didn't have a traditional music education, like certainly kids today who go to a, a high school and then go to college and become a music major and then learn from whatever teachers are at that college. I mean, you learned literally at the foot of masters on the bandstand uh, and in, a, in an informal way that is really, you know, harkens back to a, you know, early, early part of the 20th century, the way people learned. That's true, but I also did have a lot of university experience. For example, when I was at the University of Miami, I mean, I never went to the University of Miami. Right, you sat officially. in. <laughs> I sat in. Well, Jerry Coker heard me sitting in with Iris Sullivan, and Jerry was the head of the University of Miami Jazz Department. Right, and a magnificent jazz and, educator. And a, and, a, and a really good tenor player. Yeah. Um, so Jerry heard me and said, listen, why don't you come by the university, and we'll, we'll stick you in the band. You know, you can improve your reading and do that, and we'll give you some solos. We'll make you like a soloist with us. Because he was impressed with my playing. This is after I came back from Phil's camp. At this point, I was 17. Right. And I'd had other experiences in between. So I was playing pretty well, and, and well enough that Ira would let me sit in. And, uh, you know, we, he'd stomp at me and uh, play Cherokee and B. And uh, <laughs> all kind of things. Yeah. Now, um, those are the days before the Abasol Music Minus One Cherokee and Twelve Keys. Right. I mean, you had to do it yourself. But you had to do it yourself, and you had to be ready for wherever I was going to do it. Yeah. So while I was there, I met a beautiful piano player named Mike Gerber, who's a blind pianist. And Mike uh, didn't have a roommate, so I slept on the box spring, and he slept on the mattress. And I was just about. My mother was me mentally ill, so it was very hard to live at home. Right. So I was away, and I would stay either with Tony Castellano, a wonderful piano player who became right. one of my best friends, 
he and his twin brother Dolph were both amazing musicians, and I stayed at Tony's house a lot. I lived with Tony. But between that, it was like between Tony and the University of Miami, Mike's room, and Mike and I would go into the practice room late at night when it was closed. We found a way to open the door, and uh, we'd go and we'd, you know, we'd practice until the sun came up, and we'd play, you know, Stella by Starlight in different keys or whatever we were working on. Right. So that was very important. We'd do that. And so then I was at the university, and I was offered a full scholarship to the university. I audited every class that I liked. Any class. You I were liked. the ultimate sitter in, whether it be on the bandstand or in college. Right. You sat I was in just everywhere. In. I was just, <laughs> just dropping in. And Jerry Coker said to me, Look, they want to offer you a full scholarship. Plus, I was writing term papers for the jazz history class. I was, getting, I was making good money. I was teaching the students at the university for $3 a lesson. And I was writing term papers for like 20 bucks for the students. And Larry Lappin, who was the teacher of the, oh, yeah. of the uh, jazz, jazz, vocal. Uh, jazz history department. Yeah, yeah he, also, you know, he was a famous guy down there. At the university. Well, Larry said, we actually played a club date together at one point or something. I don't remember exactly how this came up, but he said, you know, Bob, Bobby, everybody called me Bobby. <laughs> I know that you've been writing these term papers for people because even though you can feel you're trying to write a different style, but you have a style of writing that I could tell, you know, <laughs> the, the paper on Bud Powell was very similar to the writing on Coleman Hawkins. And like, you know, so, so I, I wanted to say, you haven't fooled me. Yeah. And, you know, I could do things like if I were an academic type, I'd have you thrown off the campus, you know, for right. it's really bad what you did. You can't yeah. be doing this. Right. But, you know, we'll just forget it because it's you, you know, so it was good. So anyway, I, I did that and I went to the University of Miami and Jerry Coker said to me, you should turn down the scholarship. They, had, they wanted to offer me I dropped out of high school, but I had to get my high school equivalency. And then you can be, have a full scholarship to the university. But I, I, I uh, said, Jerry told me to say, he said, you go to New York, go back to New York. You should be in New York. So I took his advice and did that. Right. And uh, my other experience in academia was when I went to New York and I met Jackie Byard. And I had sat in with Jackie and uh, Jackie brought me to Harvard University to play a concert with him, with Buell Neidlinger on bass and Alan Dawson on drums. And I was uh, it just, I just turned, I think I just turned 18. And uh, then Jackie said, well, you know, I teach at New England Conservatory. So if you ever want to, you know, come up there, you know, you can take my classes right. and, you know, hang out with me, even help me teach the class. You know what I mean? Right. I said, that would be great just to be around Jackie because he was such a phenomenally great musician. And I happened to have a friend from Miami that I got to high school with named David Reskin, who was a flutist. And he was going to New England Conservatory. And he happened to have a room there. And he had a roommate who was on the road all the time, this blind pianist named Gordon. So he was only there for exams. So I had the extra bed in David's room. Man, you, you, you found a way to keep maneuvering. That, you are named correctly, Bob Mover. <laughs> I am. I mean, it worked out, you know. You really are something, man. So I lived in Jordan Hall. I lived in the dorm because you could practice. Any hour of the night, the, the practice rooms were all downstairs. I see. So I would, have, I would organize jam sessions in the main lounge. I even got to the point where they gave me meals. They thought I went there. <laughs> I said, I can't find my meal card. They say, oh, come on, we know you. And I got to know all the teachers that I, like, I'd hear the gossip among the students, like, hey, there's a class in Shane Carey and analysis by this guy, Ernst Uster. And it's, like, fantastic because you take this solo and you follow it through Note to note and blah, you know, blah, blah. Right, yeah. So in the cafeteria, he ate lunch there. You know, I'd walk over to him and I'd say, 
Mr. Worcester, I wonder, I don't have your class, but if I might be able to audit your class. And, uh, you know, just, to, I'll be quiet. I won't, you know. Yes. But may I? Oh, of course, of course. So we come in and study the Bach cello suites and do the analysis Fantastic. of the Bach cello suites. And I, my grandmother gave me a present. So she said, what do you want for your... I said, I want lessons. So I studied composition with Joseph Maneri. And he was teaching the Schoenberg Harmony book. Wow. Not 12-tone, not but the right. book. Right, the, 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 the actual... The uh, blue book. Yeah, yeah, I have it back in my other room. It's, it's a huge theory book. It's, it's fantastic. Yeah, and I finished that. He told me I just about finished it in six months, where he said most people take a year and a half, two years, but I, went, I ate it up. Right. I was writing chorales and figured bass and day and night, and right. then when I wasn't practicing, I was always practicing. And then I got gigs playing strip shows in the combat zone. So I play there at night and live at the Wing Conservatory. So you, you were, in a sense, really on the road from the time, in a sense, like a, a jazz musician on the road. We hear stories about that and the guys who toured with the big bands in the 30s and the 40s and the lifestyle. You were doing this from the time you were a kid, in essence, in a different way. But you were really like a, a, a road warrior from the time you were a young guy. Yeah, I would go between New York, Boston, and Miami. Right. Those are my three spots. Wow. Now, I, I do yeah. want to get to... Um, uh, uh, some of the people you, you know, uh, played with some of the famous band leaders. So let's, uh, in, in, in order, go first with Charles Mingus, who you got to when you were roughly around 21. Uh, and, and I know you have a lot of stories about that, but let's concentrate on what you learned from being in, around Charles Mingus and being in his band. All right, well, I first met Mingus when I was 19. He was playing at the Jazz Workshop in Boston, and I was living in Boston at the time. And I just finished hanging out in the conservatory and was on my own. Um, I joined him when I was 21. I was going to join him then. He asked me to join him at 19. And that's when I met Charles McPherson, who was a big influence on me too, and was so kind to me. You know, we both are good friends with, with you know, with Charles. Charles and, is one of the special you know, people in the he, world. He is. And, and so he, since he was leaving the band. And Mingus said, I want you to replace McPherson. We're going to Europe. We didn't go because Mingus's book came out, Beneath the Underdog, and he had a chance to do the Dick Cavett show. So he canceled the tour and stayed in the States to do the Dick Cavett show. Um, but McPherson was showing me, um, you know, give Charles a little bit more, give him a little Johnny Hodges here. Uh, you know, I know, you know, you, you, you're more of a bird guy, but, you know. Um, Following some, Charlie Mariano's approach. Right, right, right. right you know, right. Well, right, of course, you know. The, that version of Celia and the Black Celia. Sandwich Dinner Lady and all that stuff, you know. <laughs> yeah. But, but Charles McPherson even said to me, he said, I can't give him that kind of Johnny Hodges. You know, McPherson said, you know, Charlie Mariano really gave him that, but I tried to give him something else, you know. But, right. you know, he said, I can't quite get myself to do that. I, I had trouble with that, too, but I did it best I could, you know. But, um, but Mingus, you know, he was a very erratic type of cat. I mean, he could be really nice to you one day and then, uh, turn on you at another time. But it made me stronger. It made me realize that, you know, um, those tunes were challenging. You know, things like re re Reincarnation of a Lovebird and portrait, Self-Portrait Three Colors, Peggy's Blue Skylight, all those things. Very unusual tunes. Unusual tunes. Yes. Um, you know, made me be strong in a certain way. Um, you know, I'm... Listening to him compose on the piano, he was writing between sets. He would sit at the piano. And a wonderful pianist. Yeah, and so I would get to hear yeah. him. That might have been the best part of the gig, was listening to Mingus play piano between sets. 
And he was composing, I heard him compose The Eye of Hurricane Sue and Duke Ellington's Sound of Love. Wow. We'd hear it from night to night. He would evolve it, and, you know, and then finally it would be, you'd hear it evolve and, and become something. So that was a beautiful thing. And at times he was very supportive and very, very loving, nice cat. And then other times he'd be in a bad mood. Right. But, um, but alert, I, I mean, obviously as a young player, 21-year-old yeah. guy playing with Mingus, yeah. it's got to be a huge influence, but it's also got to be a huge boost to your confidence that you would be up on the bandstand and Mingus would, you know, want you there and you'd be there. How many months were you at the five spot? About uh, maybe five months. Five, five months. Five okay. Months. I mean, that's it's yeah. a tremendous boost. Now, let's jump ahead. Also, to the other no, thing okay. is that he did say to me years later, I said, Charles, I know we had our funny moments and this and that, but I want to tell you how much I learned from you. He was, been, he was sick at this time. I wanted to tell him that. He said, well, he said, yeah, I've been hearing a lot of good things about you, too. I hear you don't got so much to prove no more. So, right. see, you can see it one way. I can say, I was thinking, well, Mingus was nasty, and he was this way and that and that. But then if I look at myself at 21, yeah, I had a lot to prove, and that kind of fortunately goes away as you get older. Right, right. So I might have been really difficult in my way for him, you know. Right. So it, it's an, an interesting perspective. Uh, Chet Baker. Chet Baker was a beautiful cat, man. I love Chet. He was uh, sometimes not the easiest person, too, but he was always cool with me, you know. He was... Um, we shared this love of songs. Uh, we drove once from New York to California with Chet and uh, Ruth, his, uh, Ruth Young, his girlfriend at the time, who's a singer, and Jacques Pelzer and me. And I swear, we must have sang 200 songs together. And we, he played the same songs a lot, but the students that he knew, you know, we'd be sitting there, hey, Chet, remember, it's only human for anyone to want to be in love. And he'd go, but who wants to be in love in vain? And, you know, he was driving his Mustang, which the window didn't go down. He had to put a pillow in the window. Oh, my gosh. And his Mustang. This is a guy who had Maseratis, you know what I mean? But he had really had to be humble about this. All right. So, Bob, you've had uh, these wonderful experiences with some, some great band leaders. Uh, and you grew up and had Phil Woods and Iris Sullivan as mentors. Now, in later years, you had more mentors, guys who were giants and you were already establishing yourself as a young lion in New York at that time. And let's talk about two or three of these great players. Let's start with Lee Konitz well, and, and how Lee, you came to uh, be influenced by Lee. I heard a record when I was 17 years old in Miami uh, called Motion Lee, which is a trio with Lee and, and Elvin Jones and Sonny Dallas. And uh, I had heard a little bit of the Tristano things earlier but they hadn't really gotten to me yet. Um, but when I heard this, I guess because the swing was, you know, a little different and deeper, I really got amazed by that. So I decided it was spring vacation at the University of Miami, and there, were a there was a bulletin board, and it said, rides to New York, um, you know, for 10 days. So I took the ride for, I think it was $15 round trip. It was great, you know, 1969. <laughs> And uh, I knew that Lee Konis was in New York because I would still read the Village Voice. You know, I would get it every week wherever I was. And he, there were ads for musical study in the back. Right. He would advertise studying it. Right. I remember that. And I remember his ad. His ad was great. It said, Lee Konitz accepting students 
all instruments, all levels. Advanced, intermediate, beginners, tone deaf. That was Lee's ad. That part I don't remember. Yeah, I don't remember. That was Lee's ad. So um, now this is where I believe in, in God and fate and synchronicity and these types of things, that, this, that there, is a, there is something larger than us out there that guides our lives. So I got this ride, and I, I went to Brooks Kerr, my good friend who had a place uh, on East 62nd Street, a townhouse. So I said, I, I remembered when we got to Washington, D.C., I hadn't called Brooks yet. I had nowhere to stay in New York. I said, Brooks, oh, by the way, I'm coming up. I should be there in about five hours to New York. And he says, sure, you can stay with me, but... Um, you know, why so suddenly? I said, well, because i got to meet Lee Konitz. I've heard this record, and I've got to come there. He says, okay, listen, I'm going out to the half note to hear Roy Eldridge, but I'll leave the key in a strategic place and just let yourself in, right. make yourself at home, blah, blah, blah. So that happened. I come in there about uh, 2 in the morning. Brooks walks in like the cat that ate the canary. He's got this big smile. Now, Brooks is blind. Yes. And Brooks, had, Brooks was blind. Brooks had this... Uh, fantastically happy smile on his face. He said, Bob, you're not going to believe what happened. He said, but I was at the half note listening to Roy Eldridge. And uh, I struck up a conversation with the guy next to me at the bar. And he was very erudite, knew a lot about music, knew a lot about Roy. And, uh, you know, to make a long story short, it was Lee Konitz. <laughs> so I told him about you. And he said, come by this address tomorrow afternoon at 4 o'clock. And he'll give you a lesson. Unbelievable. And it was Dick Katz's studio. And I took this lesson, and Lee said he made me play by myself. And I remember we played, I remember April, I played it by myself, then I played it in different keys. He had me, to, you know, go through this. And finally, Dick Katz walks in. Lee says, now it's complete. Play it with a piano player. So I played it with Dick. And Lee was very complimentary and really nice. And I told him I only had $15. He charged more than that. But he said, well, just give me what you can take, what you can, because I really need the money, too. He was pretty broke. I was surprised. And... Uh, he gave me a copy of the Lee Konitz duets record, which had just come out on Milestone. Right. And I got that, and I had my record. And, and from then on, we stayed in touch. And eventually, you made a record with Lee. Eventually, yes. We had a band together at Speed yeah. Basil. We played, and yes, we played around New York with young Kenny Washington at 18 years old. And, uh, you know, various... Uh, and we, the record is with Jimmy Madison, actually, on drums. Right. And Benny Aronoff and, and uh, Mike uh, Moore. Yeah, you know, we well, lost Benny a couple of years. I love so Benny, I, I did too. He lived right here in Riverdale too. Yeah, yeah, right around the corner from me. Yes. And he had his, the, the, his wife, a French, French lady. Yes, yes, beautiful yes, lady. Yes, wonderful. He did all those years of cats, but that's another story. That's true. And he also taught at the school. I think just before you did, when at the university, oh. he was my first jazz piano teacher at the really? university. I, I love Benny. But anyway, to, uh, not to digress. Uh, we'll digress so, so, so Lee was obviously a. a, a so big I met influence. Lee, and Lee would start to let me sit in at the half note with him when he played there, and and then up until you know when I was about twenty five, twenty six, right. we were getting together regularly, and he was a big influence on me. As was Warren Marsh, I mean, who I didn't know. But, I met once, but that's another story right. which we won't go into. But Now, let, let's go on. Let's look at another uh, influence, Zoot Sims. Zoot was a wonderful cat, man. It was just Zoot and Al, both of them. I studied arranging with Al and actually would pay Al money. My dad gave me money to study. I was studying saxophone with Richie Kamuka. Was, was this in New York or in Boston? New York. Really? When I was 16, we moved to New York, my so, father and I. So you moved back from Florida to New York. In New York. I'd never been in New York. I'd never lived in New York. I see. 
We were living in Ohio, actually. My, Man, is there a part of the country you haven't lived in? <laughs> yeah, the West Coast. Um, I studied with a very good saxophone player in Cincinnati, where we were living, named Gordon Brisker, who died a few years ago. But Gordy had been with Woody Herman's band and was uh, kind of overshadowed by Sal Nistico, but was a terrific player and a terrific teacher and taught me a lot. I learned a lot from Gordon. But uh, we were living with a girlfriend of my father's in Ohio, and my brother and sister went back to live with my mother, but I couldn't really do that. They went to Florida. I see. So my dad and I were moving to the, the woman we were living with got killed in a car accident. And my, I wasn't going to stay in Ohio anyway. We were, we were, and just after that, my dad and I moved to New York, and I turned 16. We moved in March of uh, 1968 to New York. And... Uh, Yes, yeah, so, so there I began to study with Richie Kamuka, who was on the Merv Griffin show. Right. And I would go down to the Merv Griffin show. He was in the band. Right. And while I took my lessons with Richie in the back room, some of the guys in the band would watch my lessons. So guys such as Jim Hall, Bob Brookmeyer, Bill Watrous, um, Randy Brecker was on there sometimes. Um, you know, Snooky Young. Uh, these guys would all watch Richie teach me. You know, I mean, they wouldn't st sit and stay. Right, right. But they'd all catch a glimpse of a minute of our lesson. And maybe they're just curious watching Richie show me about melody playing and breathing and various things. And I used to babysit Richie's kids. And he was a tremendously under, uh, underestimated and, and, and certainly didn't receive the publicity that he should have because he was really fantastic uh, improviser, creative tenor player. He was an amazing player. He was he, a great player. Really? He like took Zoot's thing and, and made it personal, Yeah. you know, in his own way. Right. So how did that lead you to Zoot? Well, okay, well, because of that, Richie was playing at the half note. I see. See, Brooks Kerr and I used to go down to the half note all the time. We became like family at the half note. I see. And Richie was working with Roy Eldridge, and they would let me sit in. I started sitting in with Roy Eldridge when I was 16. But the first person I actually sat in with was Zoot, because Zoot and Al would play there, or Al would have a quartet, or Zoot would have a quartet, or the both of them. Right. The Half Note was home. Right. You know, and Half Note became my home. I got to know the Cantorino family very well. There was a 350 minimum, which you could eat or drink. And uh, they would, uh, I didn't even, if I didn't have the money, they didn't, didn't make me pay it. But, you know, they, they would give me wine spritzers, uh, which looked like Coca-Cola. Right. So I could have a little glass of wine with a spritzer. Right. And uh, I would come in and I would hear, I'd take my lessons with Al in Midtown and then he'd take me to Jim and Andy's afterwards, which is another story. Jim and Andy's was a well, wonderful place. Well, that was a famous, place. famous musician uh, you know, to hang I could out. Tell, write a whole book. I hope to write a book about all yeah. these experiences. But anyway, and Zoot and Al or one or the other was playing. So I, I sat in with Zoot for the very first time. Right. I sat in in New York and uh, he called Indiana and I was very confident about Indiana and started coming in and blowing blowing in A-flat because that's where Donna Lee was. Right. Well, the real key is F. So, you know, we did the nice beginning of the melody in minor thirds. Um, and then I realized <laughs> that I was not in the key that Zoot was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And uh, it's like Bird's uh, initiation uh, as a young player playing... Body and Soul or something. One of the tunes in, 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 in the one key that he knew it. At, it yeah, was, Honeysuckle uh, Rose, I think, something like that. Something like, yeah, yeah, yeah something key. like that. But, you know, so immediately that was my lesson in transposition. And I got through it. And, uh, you know, and Sue was nice to me. But years later, when I was uh, 20... Um, 
1923, in, in 1975, summer 75, I went with Chet to the Grand Parade de Jazz, Grand Parade de Jazz uh, Festival in Nice. And that was like all these all-star concerts and stuff. And Zoot and I really became very good friends at this uh, festival. He had the room across the hall from me. And I would run into him on the street at like two in the morning. He'd say, you know, you got anything to drink in your room? I say, yeah, I got something. And I thought that the, the, uh, the drinks, those little bottles in the refrigerators, were just given to me. <laughs> really so, ah, so, you learned on checkout so what Zood it was like. Drank my, we'd go to his room. He'd say, your room's a mess. Let's go to my room. And Zoot would tell me stories, and we'd talk, and we became, um, you know, close. And, and I played a few concerts with him. And, uh, you know, he would, he would compliment me. And, and uh, you know, I was very happy. When we got back to New York, I went to hear him at Hopper's one night, and he had his wife with him. And he said, oh, baby, this is the young cat I told you about. I thought, that's so nice, you know. Yeah. And now, finally, Sonny Rollins. Sonny Rollins, I met in 1973, um, no, 72, I just turned uh, 20. And I went to New York, and I was, I was living in Boston, but I was making the transition into living in New York. He played at the Vanguard. He hadn't been on the scene for a while. I remember that with Albert Daly. Albert Daly, Larry Ridley, Ridley and David, David Lee. David Lee, yes, I remember that. Drums. It was like two weeks, I think, he was there. Two weeks at the Vanguard. Yes, I remember that period. And yes. I got two nights at the front table. And between sets, I had written Sonny a letter, and I had not mailed it. But I, between sets, he was just sitting there. He didn't even go to the back room. People were, he was just sitting there, and people were walking up to him and saying, Sonny, how you doing? And blah, 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 good to have you back. And he was just friendly with everybody. And he was sipping a scotch, which I was surprised because I thought he only drank carrot juice. Those were the days of the dashiki, and he had big uh, afro, if I remember. He was healthy. Yeah. Oh, he, was, he looked like a god. Oh, yeah, and he was playing like a god. He was. He was play, and he was still playing. He was playing Three Little Words Where and Love Letters and In the Sentimental Mood and Easy to Remember. Yes, and St. Thomas. St. Thomas and, and, and Strode Road he was playing. Yes. And uh, I was just, you know, knocked out. So anyway, between sets, I started talking to him. And actually, he even gave me a sip of his guy and said, you want some of this? And I said, yeah, thanks. You know, and we're sharing this and we're talking between people. I finally said, told him I wrote him this letter. He said, well, what'd you say in the letter? I said, well, I really liked what you said about a fine musician can play with anyone just as a good person can, can get along with anyone. And I have a feeling there's a lot of humanity in your playing. And I would like to get next to you because besides music, I think you could teach me a lot about humanity. I've had Ira Sullivan and he and I were very close in Chicago. He said, well, you know, Ira is one of my main men. Ira and I, we hung out hours and hours together in Chicago. We played a lot together, and we started to talk. So Ira was my key in New York. I'd mention Ira to somebody. It would get you Yeah, and, pass. you know, yeah. it, was, it was, you know. Right. So. Um, Did you actually ever practice with Sonny and play with him? Yeah, that's the thing that was funny. So finally, the second night we're talking, and Sonny says, from the way you talk about music, um, it seems like you must play pretty well. Um, do you? <laughs> so I had to think about it. And I said, yeah, I can play. And Sonny smiles. He's got the greatest smile and laughs. He's, <laughs> and he says, isn't it nice when you know you're good? <laughs> really? Yeah. He uh, said, isn't it nice when you know you're good? 
I thought that was really good. And then we talked about that, about confidence in this and that. I said, so I really want to study with you. I, would, I said, really, one of the reasons I'm, I want to be in New York is to get next to you to study with you. And Sonny says, well, I'm sorry, I don't teach. I really don't teach. I said, he says, yeah, I don't like to examine my processes. Huh. He says, I don't like to. If I start showing, then I start thinking about them. And then, you know, I, I just don't like to do that. I said, well, I sure understand that. And I was like this. He says, but we can practice together. <laughs> sure. <laughs> so he did. He came over to Brooks Kerr's house. Incredible. And practiced. We played about two hours in the yeah. afternoon. Isn't that amazing that someone at the height of his career, I mean, and I know he did this, uh, I think in the 60s, Eddie Daniels told me he used to practice with Sonny. They would play uh, yeah. at, together for a Steve and, Lacey, too. Yeah, I mean, isn't that wonderful? Uh, yeah. yeah, he's a wonderful guy. He loved, like Ira, they have this generosity of spirit, which is something that I found with great players. So you've really had a, a potpourri of great artists and, and people of different backgrounds and different experiences and different approaches to playing as influences. And maybe that's why, as a teacher, you can offer so much and are analytically very on top of things I've found over the years that you really can nail things because you've, you've been exposed to the who's who of, in, in many ways. Yeah, I mean, I, I remember the, the things I was taught. You know, I was, I think, a good student in the sense that I gave complete attention. I realized what how special the circumstances were that here I am, you know, with these cats whose pictures are on my wall. It's like they've come down off the wall in some kind of movie fantasy, and here they are. It's a Woody blood. Allen movie coming to the Don, Yeah, right. Selling. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Selling or the Purple Rose of Cairo, you know, right, where the, the right, actor that, comes that, out, jumps yeah, off the screen. Right, and, right, right. Yeah, because <laughs> there they were, and, and they were showing yeah. me they were, you know, saying, well, Bob, you know, um, you know, and, and they had, and humor, you see, was so prevalent in all these people. Sonny and I, so people say, what are you talking about, Sonny? I said, well, we talk about everything. We've talked about concepts of God and religion and spirituality and all these things. And we've told each other dirty jokes for hours. You know, I mean, jokes, some clean, some dirty. Right. But Sonny loves a good joke. He yeah. loves a good laugh. Yeah. Zoot was a, was a prankster. I get on the band and this happened when I got back from Europe. He said, Bobby, get your horn up. Come on, play, play a set with me. I go on and he say, ladies and gentlemen, tonight we have with us a guy who I consider a young man that I've met. I've known him since he was younger, but we really got to know each other in Europe this summer. And I consider him a dear friend of mine. I'd like you to meet my good friend, Bob Mover. And I was humbled and like feeling, wow. The audience gives me a round of applause. Bob's going to play a set with us. Bob, uh, can't you mean? Sure, suit. One, two, one. Da, 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 da. <laughs> and then he stopped and put it at a reasonable tempo. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And he just wanted to do that. The whole setup, the right, whole right, build-up. Yeah, yeah. But good friends you are. He said, I'm saying over and over, friend. Right. right. My friend, Bob. My, my, the other one. Right, right. <laughs> my friend. Yeah, right. That, so, well, yeah, but that, that's, that's part of the uh, spirit. Yeah, great and, you know, and Phil, yeah. when we did this Alto Summit in Europe, we had Jackie McLean, Phil, Frank Morgan, Vincent Herring, and myself. Um, I think that was all. And Jackie McLean, you know. So we're there, and we play as at the sound check, the rehearsal. We're sitting there, and we're all playing Sean Enough and, and Donna Lee. Those are the two tunes the six right. of us are doing together. Then there's other tunes we have features. Right. 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 So we sit there, and we play. We go through the whole head of Donna Lee with six different concepts of time, of eighth note playing. 
Sure. So we finish, and it's kind of a silence because it really didn't make it. We got to find a way to sound blended better. Phil goes, Flame Keepers? Yes. Timekeepers? Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Very interesting. Yeah. Well, again, back to that thing. Phil is, was brilliant. He always found a way to just say the right thing to summarize a yeah, situation. Yeah, he was very good at that. He really was. So, you know, and, and, you know, and, and also the things I learned from Sonny Rollins about the idea of like seeing the big picture in music and life. And he would just say little nuggets sometimes, you know, like he'd say, now, you know, a talented person takes the thing that appears complex and finds a simplicity. An untalented person takes the simplest things and makes it complicated. <laughs> and, How, and, and that can apply to life anything too. in life, right? That's right, right, anything in life. Yeah. Let's try for the simplest solution to things to try to find the way to cut, you know. To, yeah, to cut to the chase. To the chase. Yeah, you know? right, so, right. And cool. the other thing he told me was about um, piano players, you know, that saxophone players are translators of pianists. He felt that Bird was, and Don Bias were translating Tatum in a huh. way, and that he was translating Bud and Monk. And that I was translating those people, plus I had people like Albert Daly and, you know, those... Interesting. You know, to, to translate. Yeah. And that how literally he had taken the voicings. This is, Sonny very rarely told you anything specific to do. But I said, I would say, what do you practice? He said, well, the intervals, this and that, you know, and then I said, well, can you give me something? He said, well, okay. You take a voicing that a pianist plays. And since we can't play it all at once, play all the voicings yeah. you can one note at a time. Right and just keep practicing voicing. So that was a very good thing to do. Huh, interesting. Yeah. Now, let's segue from that into your teaching uh, thing. One of the things you, we have talked about uh, recently in, in preparing for the interview is practicing incrementally. Um, so can you talk a little bit how you do that and, and, you know, uh, and how you try out different things melodically, harmonically, rhythmically uh, in, in doing that that our listeners could you know, take something away from? Sure, maybe I need the horn for that. Yeah, yeah. That All right, let's see if the reed is still wet. It's been sitting here a while. I think it is. No. By the way, thank my friend Alan Wan for allowing us oh. to use his special neck strap, uh, which Bob has really found to be uh, helpful. Yeah. yeah, it's a great find. Thank you, Alan. Okay, just let me adjust it. <laughs> So, tell us, tell us um, now how you would instruct a student in, in practicing, let's say, uh, a, a melodic at, uh, concept in increments. Okay, well, I might take a motif and see if I can take eight bars of a song and play it and give myself a melodic motif to vary. So it's almost, I think of it like a question and answer. Right. But using that, eight, let's say, of an A-A-B-A standard, let's just taking the A section, you would take that eight bars and, uh, and then work that eight bars. Yeah, I'd take that eight bars. If I was thinking melodically, 
with them playing, I don't know, Star Eyes or something, or you yeah. step out of a dream. What, which one do you want? Let's say, we'll say Star Eyes. So that's the, the first 16 of the AA sections before the bridge of, and Star Eyes. But, and you're thinking obviously very hard about the melody of Star Eyes and, and, and we can hear that very clearly there. Right. Well, I like to be able to go back to the melody at, whenever I can and to think that melodies grow out of the melody itself. Right. You know, Star Eyes, Bobby Dot. And the repetition. You know, Walter Davis told me, like, an interesting story about confirmation. For example, uh, confirmation is a musical term. As Walter said, he said to Bird when he played confirmation, he said, Bird, are you Catholic? He said, what do you mean? No, I'm not Walter. He said, well, you know, you wrote a tune, Confirmation. The only way I've heard of it really is confirmation. He said, no, it's a musical term where... When you play something, you confirm it. So let's say the strategy, you know, it's like I, I believe in improvising strategies. So strategically, you know. So the strategy is to confirm something. And that makes it make sense. Like, for instance, when you have you know. There's the confirmation. It's all over the place. Right. There's the confirmation. Right. And beat up is also a kind of confirmation. Right. That little rhythmical motive. A melodic motive, as it were. Yeah. To, to do it. So when you're you're improvising, let's say back to the uh, Star Eyes A yeah. section, um, uh, let's let's do this for our listeners. Let's just play the first eight bars of Star Eyes, the melody, pure melody, sure. and then let's improvise on those same eight bars. <laughs> And now, with that with that strong melodic concept, that you you know, how would you confirm that in in your play in your improvising?
I mean, that's, that's a, uh, it's a beautiful way 